Hello and welcome to a Turned Out of Punk special. Well, not very punk special, but it's all interconnected in the end. But we are here celebrating the uh, release or impending release of the Eve of Darkness Toronto Metal Book, uh, UXB Press. For those longtime listeners, a couple years ago, uh, the people from UXB Press came on the show and we talked about the incredible Toronto hardcore book, Tomorrow is Too Late, which is now completely sold out. Well, they have done it again and released a book that, dare I say, even though I care about the subject matter a lot less, I, I, I think it's kind of, to me, maybe even a better book. I think this book is absolutely phenomenal. The last one was amazing too, obviously, but this one is just unreal. It is called Eve of Darkness, Toronto Metal in the 80s. You can pre-order it now. There is going to be a release party on Saturday, September 25th. It is free. It is at Shacklin's Brewery. It's outdoors in Toronto, and it should be a really fun time. Derek talks a little bit about it on the show. So, uh, you know, what better way to celebrate the release of this book than inviting two of the members of the quite large team behind this whole thing on the show. Chris Turner is here, and then returning to the show is Derek Emerson. And once again, you got to see this thing when it comes out, and, and order it now. There's a Die Hard edition. We talks about this uh, coming up on the show. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy Chris and Derek on... Turned out a Toronto metal head. Punk, too, kind of. Derek, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Or Derek, coming back on the show. Yes. Happy to be here. Well, I was just telling you guys off air, I think uh, your new book is one of the best music books I've ever read. Uh, and I haven't had a chance to really read it. I want to read it in physical form. I've just been looking through the, the mock-ups of it. But just the level of kind of nerdiness and in-depthness and just kind of like really giving me a, a picture of a scene that I've always kind of felt was underserved historically for how big and how important it was and just seeing kind of like it all laid out there and just learning about bands that I'd only had 45s of or bands that I only had tapes of and just kind of seeing this whole story like congratulations because this is amazing. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Well, that's kind of the genesis of where this project started, is that we felt the same. It's uh, a scene that was very vibrant at the time, um, but because we didn't have sort of that, uh, the level of um, record company attention or whatever you want to call it, right? We weren't in New York or in LA or uh, places like this. Uh, we sort of got overlooked, I think. And um, I grew up as part of that scene, my background, I did a fanzine um, at the beginning of the sort of thrash era a magazine called Metallic Assault. And um, we were the first um, sort of zine of its kind to focus on the underground kind of metal that was coming up. And by underground, I mean bands that are laughably, calling them underground now is kind of laughable when you're saying, you know, it was Slayer, Metallica, Venom, um, Exodus, Exciter, those kind of bands, Anvil. Um, but those bands were really sort of underground names at the time. They were just putting out demos and maybe their first album, but not a lot of people knew who they uh, were. So we sort of um, looked at the template that we saw around us from uh, punk fanzines of the time. And uh, there were a number of punk fanzines in Toronto. And we looked at those and thought, you know what, what if we did that for metal? And that's sort of where we came at it from. And that was in 1984, I guess, uh, was that our first issue came out. And Chris, how about you? How did you kind of get into this metal stuff? Like everyone else, you know, watching my TV at a young age. Remember, you know, I didn't watch it was back then, you know, there was no much music or anything, but waiting for a Friday night for your favorite TV show to come on. You used to get one called The Beat. Remember that from Detroit? I don't know if you ever got no. seen that, did you? There was a show called The Beat in Detroit. You catch a lot of the early videos from that and it kind of turned you on to metal, you know, before yeah. like anything else. I think, you know, first introduction to metal and seeing bands like Razor exploding when you never heard of before. I never anyway, because I'm actually from Newfoundland, not from Toronto, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of what we've seen came through cable TV. And most of my cable TV, oddly enough, came through Detroit. But <laughs> somehow <laughs> our record stores carried the, you know, the local music from Toronto. So you'd stumble across the Razors. You'd stumble across a Rapid Tears or something, you know, something obscure that you never think of, you know? Yeah. Well, it's funny because like, that's one thing I was really surprised at reading the book and getting different sections about how much some of the stuff was selling and how still rarely it shows up. Like, obviously a lot of it's probably sitting in people's collections still, but like the fact that there are, are hundreds of copies of music for nations, kill them all floating around Toronto is, is mind boggling to me. Or the fact that rapid tears, like a band that I've only seen physical copies of that LP maybe twice. 
you know, and, you know, when I, I bought one, obviously one time and then maybe another time, you know, but, and here it is showing up in different places in the country. Like these must've been putting these records out in some quantity, but it's just surprising how rarely they show up. I think, you know, if you were looking for the records later in the nineties, a lot of Europeans came over and bought up a lot of the physical copies of the records, you know, mm -hmm. so the records that weren't selling well at the time sat in bins in the stores and these guys would travel over on vacation. And honestly, they'd buy a lot of them up because here we didn't think a lot of it or cared a lot about it at the time because I guess it was local. So you kind of didn't go out of your way to get it. It was always there, but you would ignore it at times because better things were coming out. Maybe, you know, the new Slayer record or something. So why pick up something? Well, I think, a, spend? I think a prime example of that is the uh, Infernal Majesty album. Um, that was a, a prime example of something that would sit in a delete bin for a dollar. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, look, you look at that record now and it's a hundred dollar, $150 record kind of thing. And uh, it's a pretty great record for an example from that time period. Yeah. But at the time it didn't, it didn't hit with the emphasis that, um, that people are looking at the reverence that people are looking at it today. And so this is part of the reason to go back and revisit that era um, both from our experiences at the time, but also kind of looking at it from the historical perspective of what did critics think of this? What did people outside of our scene look uh, look at it as? Well, that's the thing that's internet. I find you know always surprising about this is how much understanding and acceptance and kind of reverence it has internationally for for a lot of this metal. Like you know, I remember being in China looking for a shirt and walking into a record store and finding like amongst, or it's like it even just like a head shop, metal head shop, finding like bootleg shirts of Slayer and, you know, Mayhem and then, you know, Blasphemy and Slaughter, you know, and, 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 and Sacrifice, you know, and like to see all these shirts here in China and like, you don't really even see that in Canada, you know, like I think there's a lot of, you know, in Japan as well, like how many copies of those Slaughter 7-inch are in Japanese collections now? Well, and, and to your point, I mean, that's it's like that with a lot of Canadian entertainment, as you know, mm -hmm. um, until you go somewhere else and make it, you're not really <laughs> yeah. necessarily accepted in Canada. And um, but now I think that these bands have this legacy, you know, bands like Razor and Anvil with the movie and Sacrifice Slaughter, yeah. uh, even some of the bands that were, um, you know, that didn't even release things at the time, like a death militia and that kind of thing. Like they didn't really have a, a proper uh, vinyl release. Even they've got followings around the world now, you know, and. Now, maybe not to that level, but they have pockets of cult following all over the place. I think I, you can thank the internet for that, obviously. For yeah, sure. Yeah, right? yeah. Hadn't been for internet, a lot of these obscure bands would be totally forgot about and no one ever think about it again. You know, you think about like a, a band like Rapid Tears had a big presence at the time in Toronto, but faded out by the 90s that anyone even know who they were anymore. No. Right. Other than their videos popping up on YouTube and people doing a deep search for that stuff, they would have been long forgotten about, unfortunately, even though they did put out a couple albums, they just didn't make it an impression at all here in Canada. No, so they, part of what we're doing um, with this project, um, we have one of our book team members, Fran Grasso. She has a record label called uh, Urbane Grandeur Records. And so UXB Press, who puts out the books, are partnering with Urban Grandeur Records, and we're going to be putting out a compilation album of a lot of these Toronto uh, obscurities, things that were overlooked and, in our mind, criminally overlooked at the time. Bands like Banshee and Minotaur and um, Savage Steel from Mississauga, and you know, there's all kinds of bands that um, that did some really great work, um, and they came out in whatever to whatever level maybe on a cassette or maybe a seven inch that they pressed 500 copies in 1983 but like you said those are long gone and you, you can't get your hands on those sure you can look them up on a on an internet search and hear an mp3 but we wanted to collect all that stuff in one place and and give it the proper context so we're putting out a compilation album um and it's called actually it's named after the fanzine that we did metallic assault um so that's going to be coming out around the time of the book launch that's awesome because yeah like there is I don't know. It's, I think it's a problem with just Canadian culture in general. There's just like a lack of canonization and maybe it is that sort of like often talked about Canadian inferiority complex, but like the idea that we just don't collect all this sort of information. Now I think it makes sense with some of the hardcore stuff because it is stuff that is pretty obscure in some cases. So, but this, this was mainstreamish touching mainstream music. Like I remember even as a kid growing up in kind of the mid to late eighties and just getting into music and you'd hear about killer dwarves, like Lee Aaron would get radio play. Like these were totally. big artists and it's just so, it's so awesome to see them contextualize in the same places, like a band like slaughter, which, you know, invented death metal for in a lot of ways, you know, like, or, or like was pivotal in, in sort of shaping the sound of early death metal, I should say, you know, yeah, like we, we, we didn't want to necessarily, um, sort of look at 
the overall scene in, in components. Like in our minds, Liaren can sit beside slaughter or sacrifice or whatever. Um, and we, we didn't necessarily want to break out the glam scene from the thrash scene or the, you know, traditional heavy metal scene. We're just kind of looking at it as an overview of everything that was happening back then. So you're right. There are bands in there that are, we're touching on success. Um, bands like Lear and Anvil was, you know, Anvil played the Reading Festival. You know what I mean? Like that's pretty impressive. And the, and the, and the super rock festival in Japan that they show in the movie. And, you know, they, they really did have brushes against um, success and yeah. didn't quite, you know, get past that hurdle, but um, they were in, they were rubbing elbows with the right people at some points in time. And, um, and then there were other bands that are completely obscure. Like there's a band from, again, from Mississauga called Blood that did like a couple shows and, and a couple of songs and, and whatever. And we feature them right alongside these other artists. So, and there are people that frankly know who Blood is, which is also weird, um, <laughs> you know, from just doing an internet search, you find this band and, um, you know, it's whatever. It's, it, it, we wanted to cover a little bit of everything. So there's, there's the, yeah, there's the stuff for the for the people that are know that know more of the mainstream, and there's stuff for the obscure, the collector types like Chris. But also being a metalhead, you know, like in the early '80s when you were a metalhead, everything was metal because it was all new. Whether it was Lee Aaron or you know Sacrifice, it was all metal at the time. It, you know, now we break it down to subgenres, and there's a million subgenres. But at that time, metal was metal. Mm -hmm. And that gave you a wide berth of, you know, the styles you could listen to without being harassed by your friends. And yeah, that's a good point. And that's kind of the way we wanted to look at it with this book um, yeah. is to take that sort of approach. Yeah, it's funny because you don't have in metal. There is such a, a sonic range that people are willing to accept. Like you don't necessarily see that in hardcore in the same sort of way where people are like, you know, and obviously there are people that do. But like there's such a a codified sense of 80s hardcore of like what wasn't hardcore and what was hardcore whereas with metal it seems like yeah like everything kind of fits in i mean i guess i think have... so more with revisionist glasses these days it seems yeah. though you know i think back in like the 80s late by the late 80s you would never cop up to listening to lee aaron probably if you were listening to slayer you know what i mean yeah in the mid early 80s you would but by the late 80s you wouldn't now yeah. things have changed a bit and people kind of put on those glasses and look back and we accept a lot more now i mean even my tastes have changed what i listened to back then i would definitely be more into the razor thing than anything else but today now i am more open to listening to killer doors than i would have been back then mm -hmm. you know and enjoy yeah. it because now i can kind of hear what i was missing i think back then yeah well there was that term poser back then right yeah <laughs> anybody who wasn't into the hardcore thrash kind of kind of stuff uh, if they were into something a little bit lighter uh, sounding, then the, that word poser came out of the uh, woodwork a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think the or Yemen. Yemen was another one in Toronto. I don't know uh, if Yemen. you guys are familiar with that one. No. Uh, that came out of uh, people like kind of, it was a it was a bit of a mocking term of people who were into Zeppelin and, uh, you know, those kind of bands. And uh, the idea was that they walked around with their Kodiak boots and their, and their, um, um, plaid jackets and stuff and they would say yeah man all the time so they were called <laughs> yeah man yeah mans <laughs> so that was another derogatory term that the hardcore metal people used to uh, kind of toss around that's awesome i think the thing that's amazing is how it does kind of seem to like rise up and then almost crest as a scene and then it feels like there's like feels like there's such a definitive end to it at a certain point where like you know and it's interesting how you know metal does come back in toronto like we definitely have you know uh, like great bands that are playing it but like it felt like it it, it did for something that got so big it just kind of died off at a, at a certain point why do you think that is like obviously you know people like yourself were getting more into like what were you kind of getting more into punk rock and hardcore i guess by that point right Derek? certainly for me i was by the um by 86 i was pretty much exclusively uh, listening to hardcore and mm -hmm. started the band msi and so i mean obviously there would be some metal that still kind of filtered through i'd be listening to slayer or you know celtic Frost or whoever but um but i was more interested in exploring the hardcore side of things um which i'd been listening to throughout my metal phase earlier metal phase too um it wasn't exclusive i was listening to discharge and you know, gbh and some of those british bands as well as um you know exodus and slayer and all of that and razor and these bands um so yeah it, it to me it seemed like the uh the 80s i think from what we gathered from our research seemed to be the grunge thing is that when grunge started to kick in in the later 80s um record labels were going that way glam bands um had become passe because they just were so 
uh, prevalent on you know much music, MTV, and that kind of thing. It kind of just wore out its welcome, I think. And so then, as things started to transition over to grunge, heavy metal sort of became a, a negative term. I think it became this sort of albatross around a lot of bands' necks, and they kind of some of them started to drift a little bit more towards other things and not necessarily uh, sort of carry that flag of metal as proudly as they would have a few years earlier. Yeah, yeah, no, I think too in Toronto maybe. It didn't take the right turn when it came to metal. You know, I think when you looked at like a place like Florida, you had a lot of death metal coming out of Florida. Germany was black metal was rising in, you know, Finland and places like that. But Toronto, it stayed kind of they stayed in the thrash rut and didn't grow out of it, unfortunately. I think that had something to do with it. There really, you know, there was no see death metal scene person. Not that it wasn't death metal bands, but there was no big scene, no burgeoning brand new scene anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, it feels like you know, there are bands that are doing it faster and things like that, but it doesn't get as extreme as it does certainly in, in obviously Scandinavia and, and even Vancouver in the late eighties where, where, you know, you have the, the rise of kind of more black metal stuff. I, I like, I kind of think the grunge thing's interesting too, because like you don't really even have grunge bands show up in Toronto. Like there's not really, I guess the tragically hip get huge during that period, but it's not really till that, what do they call it? The can rock Renaissance that you really do see a rise of like, sort of a, a, a defined sound, um, you know, like it, it's interesting. The metal thing kind of dies off. There's nothing really there to replace it. I think that um, also like besides the earlier point that I was making about the record companies and there wasn't really that support, there really wasn't a whole ton of support, even when it came to promoters or venues and that kind of thing, because as we sort of go through the book, we, we focus on all of these things, by the way, in the book, mm -hmm. we focus on who was promoting at what time and what venues they were using, whatnot. And like the Gary's, for instance, took on um, some of the metal earlier, bigger profile, I guess, metal shows, if you want to call it like that, for bigger, bigger profile of the underground kind of bands like Slayer and Venom and uh, Meta uh, well, actually, they didn't do Metallica, but that kind of thing. They were renting out the concert hall and they were doing things in that size of venue. And that continued throughout the 80s. And um, there was a, a promoter team called the Rays, which was Ray Moss and um, uh, black metal Ray Wallace. And they partnered up and they did a few uh, big shows at the concert hall. They did two actually called the um, Toronto Metal Massacre shows. And they were a mixture of local bands and out of town bands on those shows. The first one was pretty well attended, but I think the second one, which happened, uh, it was just after Christmas, I believe. It was like basically one of the last shows of the 80s. It was like, you know, December, I think it was 26 or 7th, something like that, Chris. Okay. And uh, of, of 89. And it really wasn't that well attended. And it seemed like that really was sort of the end of that era was like, you know, it was tailing off. I think there was a blizzard or something that night. There anyway. was a blizzard that night. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but that didn't help things, but it just seemed like <laughs> we were a bit kind of winding down at that point. And it, coincidentally right at the end of the decade. Yeah. Like it, I guess there's also, yeah. look, I guess death of gods, you know, but it's hard to think of bands that were kind of like in the, into the late eighties kind of starting up at that point, carrying the flag in the way. But the, the other thing is the level of in-depthness in this book is incredible. Like you talk about bands that don't even necessarily exist outside of zine ads you know like right. the level of just like research like where does that come from like is it that just from your personal archives for me it was because one thing i love doing is deep diving into music you know and i think too again because of the internet and being belonging to groups on the internet vinyl collection groups demo collection groups everyone is talking whispering about any little thing that pops up so you go diving and looking for it you know mm. you go you go on youtube you start looking up for a demo and just leave you to another and another and another you find all these obscure bands and you just want to know more about them you know and if they're local they're probably on facebook go on facebook and look them up maybe you can find a member you know yeah that's kind of all where it came from and even zines at the time zines when they came out were you know introducing all the brand new bands everyone sent their demos so if you got your hand on some old zines that was a treasure trove of information because there's going to be lists of bands you've forgotten about or never heard of. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely. I just find like, I, that's what I love about the book is like, you know, business cards of people. Like it's just, it's a book that you can kind of flip through and it really does feel like it's hard to say that anything's definitive on a topic, but I can't like talking about, you know, college radio shows in this book as well. Like, I can't imagine going more in depth than that in a later edition of this thing or something. We didn't leave too many stones unturned. Yeah. No, no, definitely. We went the distance. It, it took about um, two and a half years to put the book together. Um, so we definitely put in the time and, uh, and the care to make sure that as many aspects were covered as possible and talking to as many people as we could. 
Yeah. Like how did that start? Like what was the first sort of interviews that you did for this thing? Well, I think like, that just to back it up a bit, like, you know, we did the hardcore book in 2018. So that was a book about the Toronto punk scene. Uh, it was called tomorrow is too late. And, um, when it, when I started out, um, it became where it stemmed from was that we started a Facebook page for the band that I was in MSI. And so we'd post flyers and, uh, you know, people would comment on them and then, you know, different, uh, conversations would start that would veer off into other shows that happened and other bands that came to town. And inevitably someone would say, why isn't there a book about this? And, um, I kept hearing that comment over and over. And finally, Sean Churry, who I partnered with on the first book, he said that he said that and I private messaged him and I said, well, why don't we do one? He used to be a zine guy and I was too. So we thought, you know, and I work at a printing company who's better to try and put this thing <laughs> together than guys that have written about it and experienced it and lived it and also have access to printing presses. Right. So, yeah. um, so that's how that came out. So the idea at the beginning was just to do a book about sort of the heavy music scenes around Toronto in the eighties, metal and punk. And it was going to be a blended kind of uh, book. Um, but as we started to do the research, we started to do interviews in both streams, the metal and the punk side, and we just realized that there's way too much content. So we decided just to continue with the punk path first. And then once that was done, uh, we had that book launch show in October of uh, 2018. We started work on the metal book in November of, of 2018. Oh, it was wow. a month later we started working on it. So we'd already done a couple of interviews because of the crossover type of bands that may have been you know, part of the punk book originally. And we broke it out and we said, no, let's keep them separated and, and do two separate volumes. So they're sort of companion pieces that way. Yeah, no, it definitely does feel like there's like the, the way it intertwines with punk, I find really interesting. And like, you know, like the fact that, you know, Al Nolan, when he was on the show, talked about being a metalhead growing up in the East End. And he's my introduction in a lot of ways to this music, going to see Trigger Happy shows. So it's like there is. And, and of course, Brian Taylor, who's a, a, a key figure in both scenes like like a pivotal kind of figure in both scenes and like it just does feel like there is this sort of like pulling back and forth between punk and and more kind of like heavy metal of some people over the years you know which i guess is just the natural way people go through life but it's interesting how important these two scenes are looking back on it historically and and you brought up earlier about the uh, radio show that brian did uh it's called aggressive rock or arg rock and um, that show was really uh, critical to most of our development in this in yep. this area of the music because it really it showed you punk, it showed you crossover, it showed you metal, and he did really didn't have any barriers between them. He would, uh, you know, he, he's once said that you know his best uh, idea of doing a radio show would be able to play you know AOD and then uh, you know Motorhead or, or Slayer or something like that right beside each other, and you know it doesn't seem to matter about the barriers. It's all you know strong aggressive kind of music. And um, to, to some extent, they even do that at the record, did that at the record peddler. They didn't really have things broken down into genres. It was just alphabetically filed records. So you could be coming across a Hawkwind record and then you come across a, you know, uh, whatever, Amon Dual record and a whatever, you know what I mean? Like it's just all yeah. over the map. And so it was kind of interesting from that perspective, from the record peddler and from his radio show, like it, it didn't seem like Chris said earlier, there wasn't, genres weren't broken down as firmly as they became later on in the decade and, and subsequent decades. So it was kind of an interesting, fertile time to hear a lot of different things. And we didn't really have as many barriers as you, as you have now. Well, I think too, also friendships in school. I think if you were into metal or into hardcore, into punk, you probably weren't into popular kid group. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you had your friends were punk rockers or, you know, metal people hung out with, you had to find, there's only probably half dozen of you in a school. So you had to stick together. So you were introducing each other to different, you know, music. You know, my friends introduced me to punk. I had never listened to, I'd introduced them to metal and you enjoy them both. And you go to both shows. Yeah. It's amazing how it kind of shifts post Nirvana too. Like Nirvana is like such a, a big thing. Cause obviously that begats that whole, later period where you have you know all the southern california punk stuff and northern california punk stuff get really popular where you do have that kind of you know obviously the rise of grunge but ultimately sort of the resurgence of punk rock it's sort of like the main youth music for a moment you know and it feels like that was you know once again like a big cultural shift like it pulled a lot of people obviously away from metal shows i'm sure in toronto i know it did from growing up here yeah that time um, a band that I'm obsessed with from this era, and I think a band that deserves far more coverage and documentation, including movies, would be like a band like Mal Havoc. And just like, once again, traveling places and talking to people about them. 
and sort of appreciating how big they are and how important they are. But like, you know, the history of that band is fascinating. Like you got people from everything from broken social scene to closet monster playing in Mal Havoc at different times. Like it really is sort of like the history of, of the scene can be told through that band. And, and that's another example of um, the record label that we we're talking about earlier, Franz label, Urban Grande, that that was one of the first releases that they put mm -hmm. out um, was the demo of Mal Havoc, Age of the Dark Renaissance. And to me, that's one of the best Canadian metal recordings of all time. It's, it's, way, it's always been way up there on my list, um, but it's relatively uh, unknown. Yeah. And so it was really nice to see her do a deluxe package with that and have a gatefold sleeve and whatnot. I'm not sure if there's still copies of that left, but if anybody oh, listened to it, <laughs> yeah, it may well be. But if anybody's listening to it, try and look that up, try and find it. It's a great record, great demo. Um, and the band, yeah, they were really impressive. And, you know, and seeing them back in that time period, and they used to do live shows when they were in that original uh, format of the, of the three piece metal band was, it was something to, uh, to behold. It was really, it was a cool ambiance that they would create. And, um, but again, it's like, it just seemed to kind of get lost to the sands of time. And um, it was another band that we had to obviously cover and, and make sure that they were well represented in the book. It's interesting how much, much music played a part too. And I guess like what they were choosing to cover and what they weren't choosing to cover. And I guess what, you know, power third, well, Pepsi power hour, you know, becoming the power 30 and sort of like where they're putting their focus, where they're putting their attention at different times probably played a huge factor in this as well. Cause there isn't, there isn't like a radio station that would be playing any of this stuff. Well, I think a huge moment was when sacrifice uh, reanimation video came out and they adopted that as their theme song. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and so um, sacrifice mentioned that in the book, like that was a moment where they would start walking down the street and being recognized and people would be, you know, they'd, they'd see their names on people's jackets and things like that. And people would come up to them at McDonald's and like, can I get your autograph? And they just, they were just like, wow, this is a taste of the success that we, you know, had no idea what this was like. And so there were those moments and Razor before them having their video played on TV, Evil Invaders, that was filmed at Larry's Hideaway. And, um, you know, I, I was lucky enough and a couple of people, I think, on the book team were lucky enough to be at the video shoot that day. And, uh, you know, and see how this sort of developed and how it came about. And before that, even, um, there was a band called Hateful Snake. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with them. No. But, okay, so prior to, uh, I guess right before um, Much Music started, there was uh, a, a call for music videos, and especially Canadian content, because the CRTC would require that. So um, there was a show called uh, Toronto Rocks which was on city TV. And this was right around the time that um, much music was starting to form. Mm -hmm. And they would have a thing called midweek metal mania and they would play videos by, you know, white snake or helix or, you know, something that's popular. And some of that stuff was Canadian, like uh, killer dwarves and things like that. Uh, but there was this band from Toronto called hateful snake. And they had a manager who had connections to the people at city TV. And they were telling him the story about, you know, we need Canadian content. So, he decided to film a video of his of this band that he represented and they did it on a shoestring budget and they uh, filmed it on without any permits or anything on the on young street um down by the princess gates by the cne they set up a full uh stage setup and started playing in the middle of the street <laughs> in the middle of the night and so they did all this without permits just on the fly and put together this video that thing got airplay all over the place because it one it was great the song is really catchy. The video is amazing. And it's a great time capsule of, um, of Toronto in that era. And it gives this whole DIY spirit. If anybody's listening that hasn't seen that video, look it up. Uh, but it has a great spirit to it. And now the shocking thing to us was that that song, as catchy as it is, and as much video play as it got back then, it was never actually released. So what we decided to do was approach the band and say, can we put that out as a seven inch? Um, so we want to do it on vinyl and give it its proper release and, um, and and basically give it away with the diehard version of the book that we're going to be uh, offering for pre-sale pretty soon. And That's awesome. just by coincidence, I was having a, a conversation with Danko Jones about all of this. And he told me, well, do you know that we did a tribute recording of that song? And I said, no, I had no idea. And apparently on the 30th anniversary, which was 2014, uh, he got together an all-star cast of Toronto musicians, people from Broken Social Scene and uh, Sacrifice and Cancer Bats and all these bands um, and Diamonds and, you know, and they did a recording of it and they invited the singer from Hateful Snake to come in. So they have a recording of that song. So the single that we're releasing is going to be the original on the A side and the Danko Jones all-star uh, tribute on the B side. That's awesome. 
That's too funny. That's uh yeah, Danko's like a guy who you know, like loves this is his where his heart is, right? Like this kind of stuff. Like it's just it's amazing how, you know, once again, like this informs so much of stuff that has been exported. Like, you know, Danko Jones is a group that has gone all over the world, you know, certainly in Europe, massively popular and successful and like completely rooted in this scene, you know. And I guess Wayne's World also, like the the famous gasworks stuff in Wayne's World is another moment of of international recognition that for the scene even if it's maybe flat passing off in chicago yeah well it's true uh the wayne's world um tribute i guess you could call it um it, it does give a nod to how um that scene did influence mike myers and a lot of other people in fact mike myers was even in the hardcore book he was going to shows at um start dancing and there are photographs of him doing yeah, that. So, that's so right. punk and I don't know if you've had him on your show, but you should try and get him because uh, he's definitely been involved with the metal and punk scenes in Toronto for sure. Yeah, no, I know he's. Uh, I know his brother too. His brother's uh, certainly involved in Record Store Day and stuff like that. Does the Record Store Day Paul podcast as well, Paul and things like that. So that's amazing how it does reach. You know, and then once again, Kids in the Hall obviously have deep connections to. Um, I think Scott Thompson talked about metal and rock and hard rock being a big thing on his radar early on. Um, and and even Bruce Bruce talked about Canadian rock being something that was really important to him when he was a lot younger. Like this was this was the music of rebellion, you know, for a lot of kids. Like this was the first music you'd be exposed to where it told you like, yeah, make your own way. Yeah, Killer Dwarves. I remember watching that Killer Dwarves video where they make their own record. And right. just being like, oh, shit, yeah, I guess band could make their own record, you know, as a little kid. And that was like my first exposure to that. It is yeah, really DIY. Video, yeah, that video in particular is one that does stand out as a DIY feel to it, as as does that Hateful Snake. And if you watch oh. those kind of things, you're thinking, you know, there's not that uh, big of a leap from the at least the the heart of these uh, punk and, and metal scenes. You know, they're coming from the same place where they're not really accepted by mainstream media. I mean, metal a little bit more so, but it was really the sort of, you know, the, the, the accepted sort of forms of metal were, were you know, touted as something great. But the stuff that we're focusing, a lot of what we're focusing on was ignored completely by the critics at the time. Not even ignored. When they, when they actually would write about it, they wrote about it in a pretty derogatory sort of way. And yeah. uh, in the Toronto media. But in this diehard package that we're going to be putting out, um, we've collected a lot of articles and reviews from media around the world at that time. And there's where you start to see that people were getting it outside of Toronto. People were understanding what we were doing here. And I think that maybe it didn't blow up to the level that we would have hoped it would have um, because of that lack of infrastructure. We didn't have that sort of record company push or management push or any of those kind of things. Um, you know, bands like Sacrifice and Slaughter were signed to Diabolic Force. And we interviewed Brian Taylor and we interviewed Ben Hoffman, who uh, bankrolled the uh, the operation. And both of them have said, like, if those bands had been uh, managed by someone in, in New York or L.A. or somewhere else, they would have been, you know, a much, much uh, made a much, much larger impact at the time. Hmm. And but because they didn't have that knowledge, uh, Brian and Ben, nor did the bands, you know, they, they were lucky to even go and play shows outside of Toronto, let alone try and get records out there. Right. Uh, geographically how large the country is it was really to get from city to city just too far for most bands yeah other than doing the quebec circuit they would do but that'd be it that was a huge thing actually early on that we found too is that the toronto bands especially in the earlier part of the 80s they did this quebec circuit like religiously all the bands they they would play every place in quebec you could imagine and some you can't imagine there were a lot of like biker festivals and things like this and bands that's how they made a living back then yeah if you, if you want to call it a living. Well, it, Quebec has also always been kind of a different beast in terms of rock music in general and rock and roll. Like where th like this stuff is so much more popular, you know, like, like the fact that I think these bands probably could do a lot better financially. And it also is a completely different world musically. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, it's weird how no one toured. And I guess that's a big, like Toronto bands didn't really tour. And it's like, that is so much of what, you know drives kind of underground music and i guess that's geographically it's so hard to kind of get to new york whether that's like eight hours detroit cleveland and then but that's also a border right like and then if you're going to try and tour canada oh my god the drives are oh yeah it's just not feasible <laughs> not feasible you know but the bands did it and then it's what i guess made those bands in that can rock renaissance renaissance era able to become so popular nationally as they had the much music support 
and they were able to do that touring right across the country and just kind of build those audiences. And it's just, yeah, I guess the, the divide is just so big for these metal bands prior to that. We had some of the bands like Helix could do it, of course. Yeah. Headpins, you know, they could certainly do it. More commercial style bands, but yet underground bands just couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Was there much of a scene for in Newfoundland at this time in terms of like underground metal? There was always a scene. You know, I used to play in bands in that period too. Punk was really big in Newfoundland in the early years. Mm-hmm. But you know, by the time I think Skits I were kind of really the first band that touched on they were kind of crossover you know them yeah. from their time in toronto but you know they were kind of the big deal at the time they were the only one that was doing anything that was kind of heavy everything and it was hardcore but it was nothing outside of that really there was not much there was a lot of people listening to metal but not bands playing it you know because but even when we had bands we'd have to struggle to find any of you lost your guitar player it could take you six months to find someone <laughs> else that knew anything about metal that would play it you know the yeah. same as any i guess any small place anywhere in the world you know it's just having the talent there you know there's a lot of people that wanted to do it but not a lot of people that had the talent to do it <laughs> well it's it's interesting because like you know the first canadian arguably punk LP, certainly DIY punk LP comes out of Newfoundland. And you mentioned, you know, with the slime and schizoid slime. Yeah. is like one of the best hardcore bands. I, I always say that's like the best New York hardcore seven inch, not from New York, because I think that, I think that record's incredible. Like there's just like, there are these great bands coming out of there, but like, once again, it, it must be hard to find the members. Yeah. As you say, when, when someone loses interest in being the project. Yeah. I mean, we, I used to be in a band with the drummer from schizoid. We played together for years. You know what I mean? But yeah, he was an amazingly, amazing drummer who just mm-hmm. incredible he could have been in any band he wanted to be but he just didn't leave newfoundland other than come to toronto and went back to newfoundland yeah. you know it's kind of sad to see that you know that kind of wasted potential in a way you know yeah but that i guess that's what happens with all these bands like it's like the what could have been stories that sometimes become the most interesting like you know reading this book reading about these bands that like i know nothing about you know or these bands that i have a seven inch by like banshee banshee's a band that i've had a seven inch sitting in my collection for years mm-hmm. You I know, know James very well. Yeah. yeah, and just like <laughs> to finally be like, oh my god, here's how they fit together, and like, there's just so much detail and so much history of these bands that otherwise, like you're saying, are are almost forgotten, except for on groups on the internet where people are focused on collecting this stuff. So to see it kind of collected in a place where it's consumable by people that aren't on these groups is going to be really awesome. I think right. to, to have for sure. Um, I guess like if there's anything else you guys want to get to in terms of this diehard release, when is this all supposed to come out now? So um, we're scheduling a book launch event um, for Saturday, September the 25th at Shacklands Brewery here in Toronto. So a friend of ours owns Shacklands and uh, he's offering us his facility to have an event. Like we were wondering about doing shows and that with obviously with COVID, we're not really too um, sure about indoor uh, activities. So we thought, you know what, we can do an outdoor all day kind of outdoor event. So the idea being that uh, Shacklands is going to brew a, a special brew for the event. Uh, and we're going to be branding it as the sort of 80s metal beer of the day. And um, we're going to be having some DJs showing up and playing some of their favorite records of the 80s metal uh, genre. And so some people that um, are going to have some fun sets, I think. Um, Drew Masters from Meat Magazine is going to be joining us and doing a set. Um, a couple of the guys from uh, early 80s metal band called Kraken who were friends with Anvil and they toured with them a lot and actually Lips produced their demo. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to be doing a set. And oddly enough, Brian Taylor is planning on doing a, uh, a set. That and, is insane. That is a and, get. Well, it's, it's interesting that he's planning on doing it sort of like Arg Rock, where he wants to have a microphone and be able to talk in between songs. So oh, God my knows, God. <laughs> God knows what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, I said, by all means, we'll get you a microphone. That'll be amazing. Um, so that's the tentative plan. And, um, so the book will come out around then, um, September 25th, and, uh, we're going to be doing a pre-sale before that and offering this diehard package. So, um, in the package, there's a whole bunch of things that we're going to advertise on the uh, website at the time when we make the announcement. Um, but one of the things will be that hateful snake limited edition seven inch. Um, and there's also going to be, um, posters and, and all kinds of other things that, uh, that are going to be of interest to people from that era and also people just have an interest in that memorabilia from that time period it's some pretty yeah. cool stuff yeah it's it's amazing to kind of hear and see like all these things that once again like we're only kind of whispered about and collected like the only reason i know about any of this stuff is because i would punish you and glenn for stories you yeah. know like over the years and just being like you know what is this band like what is do how does gog this hardcore band fit into 
the metal stuff that was happening and like Glenn being like, oh yeah, they used to play with Slaughter all the time. Like it was like something like, oh, well, it's all so awesome how it, like to see it all kind of laid out now so I can read about it or you know, buy it for people. Well, unless, uh, you know, films or books or whatever are made about these topics, yeah, they're just going to disappear. And so again, that's part of the impetus behind this is to get people's memories down now while they still have them and uh, get them on paper and put them out. And, you know, then there's that document, like you said, whether or not it's definitive, we kind of think this, this will be sort of the definitive, uh, you know, uh, wrap up of these scenes of the Toronto scene of hardcore and of metal. And so we're happy to do that. And hopefully after this, there's a few other things that we're thinking about uh, documenting that we just want to make sure don't get forgotten. So and I think we want to give the scene respect as well. I mean, you know, like, Historically, metal is not given much respect at all, you know, and you know, people worked hard. They, they deserve the respect that, you know, they earn from that time period. Well, I think it's I think it's just here because if you look at America, I think there are a lot there's a lot of like sort of, you know, kind of I don't know, like, well, maybe it's just how popular those bands got. But there's a lot of sort of, uh, you know, due respect given to like the big metal bands, you know, like the big four and how popular that got. But like. Yeah, like even even that Anvil documentary, like it certainly does not paint paint them with a great brush, to, no. <laughs> to, you know, before that big comeback moment. Like considering how popular they were and how important they kind of were, like it shows, I guess, how far it had fallen by that point for a lot of these bands, which is which is unfortunate because this music is so great. And you know, as I said, there was a lot of very. You think the bands like Kraken? I think back to them, yeah. they were like probably one of my favorite bands I think ever to come out of Toronto, you know, and getting the eighties, I didn't really know about them at all. You know, it wasn't until the whole collecting thing started in the nineties, 2000, I even heard who they were started looking into them, but musically they're phenomenal. Mm. And to me, it's one of the biggest tragedies to come out of Toronto is that, that they never got heard because they never released any vinyl. They did some demos, recorded some great demos, but it never got released except for a bootleg. I think at the end of the nineties and that was in Germany. All right. Yeah. Even the I stories think, about the demos are interesting because they, they kind of worked with Anvil. They were buddies with them. And uh, when Anvil was doing the uh, metal on metal uh, sessions, uh, they had, uh, you know, a big time producer in and Anvil basically said, Hey, why don't you come in on the nighttime hours and work with them and, and do some recordings. So they gave them sort of a leg up and they had this great recording and it just never came out. And there's, you know, we cover all of that in the book and, and whatnot, but um, there's all these stories of bands that should have been more, uh, should have got more recognition than they did. Like Chris mentions about Kraken. They wrote a song and, and recorded it in 1980 called Executioner, which is, I don't know, it's almost bordering on a thrash song, you know, years before these other bands started to touch on that. Thrash is maybe a little, uh, you know, enthusiastic of a term for that song, but it's they're very, it's a very up-tempo. It's a power metal. It's definitely different European metal. style power metal. Right. Yeah. It's got like some you know double bass going and whatnot. There's there's another band actually that we discovered while we were researching the book um, that none of us have really ever heard of, a band called Genghis Khan. And um, there's going to be another release that we're going to be working on, uh, UXB Press with Urban Grand J Records. And we're going to be putting out that release uh, hopefully by the end of the year or early next year. But they had fantastic recordings. They were doing stuff in 1980, 81, very uh, new wave of British heavy metal influence. In fact, the, the guitarist was from England and he was writing these songs in 78, 79 as all of that scene was developing over there. And he came over to Canada and started a band and did this, did this series of recordings that are unbelievably amazing to us. And we were shocked to find this. And uh, they still have the 24 track master tape. So we've gone into the studio and, and remixed everything and done, and done it right from scratch. So it's gonna sound pristine. And this is something that nobody's ever heard um, really outside of the book team. And and a really crappy one song on uh, on YouTube <laughs> from, a, from a million generation cassette. And that's how we kind of stumbled across them, to be honest. Yeah. Um, we heard about them and we contacted the person who posted that. It turned out to be the guitarist's son. And he linked us with the, the father and, um, yeah, and we went from there. So we're that's something awesome. Oh, sorry. sorry, I was going to say, that's just some of the most exciting thing about doing this book was discovering bands that not only were they not popular, no one even knew it existed at all. Yeah. You know, in Waterdown here, there was a band... Dan Jeffries, Century was the name of the band, Dan Jeffries Century. And they have songs that are like just 100% Jews Priest style heavy metal. And it is incredible stuff. Mm. And no one ever heard of it, even in Toronto at the time. When we were looking for these bands, no one knew who we were talking about. Completely yeah. obscure, you know? Well, that's what I find fascinating. Like these people don't seem like they're part of the same scene. Like, 
No, like it seems like they were just like legit garage bands that weren't necessarily interested to or able to get it together to like plug in to to the, the to the usual network, right? Right, and it was also different scenes, like little micro scenes, like in the Durham region. You had a scene, you know. Hamilton had his own scene. Mm-hmm. I find like the whole Ottawa Ajax area, Oshawa, right? Our Ajax area had an amazing little scene going on in the early 80s. Bands like, you know, Crimson Tiger and Minotaur, they were doing stuff that were just very early Iron Maiden sounding, like in 82 and 83. It was incredible. Yet they didn't really make a huge impact, even in the city of Toronto itself. Yeah. Like, it, why do you think that is? Why do you think it was so regional like that? Is it just a function of just the time? Because it's certainly, you know, like it's it's amazing how there wasn't more of sort of like a national breakout. I guess there are in the, the bigger bands that we've talked about, but like in these early scenes. I think a lot of them, they just didn't last long enough. A lot of these bands may have only been around for one, two years. Mm-hmm. You know, they did something great. They recorded a great demo or something and then quickly disappeared. So they were best friends growing up in Oshawa. But by the time one left to go to Toronto, the rest didn't come and it just all dissolved. Yeah. And, and like, like other scenes, it's uh, a lot of this is forming... Uh, in high school and then people yeah. you know grow, grow up air quotes and you know go off to university or whatever meet meet a girl or get a job or you know fill in the blank of things that take the take your emphasis away from music and um and then there's others like chris mentioned that bands that just last a short period and then the members move on to other things we found that there was a lot of like in the durham region there's a lot of sort of incestuous sort of you know people hopping from one band to the next and that kind of thing and it was interesting mm-hmm. looking at that lineage but to have that sort of staying power to get a following and whatnot, it just, yeah, a lot of bands that didn't last that long. Yeah, no, it, it definitely reading the book feels like there is a, uh, there's like, it was just like, I guess all these sorts of music, like when you're younger is when you have time to kind of do this and energy to kind of do this thing. But it's also when your life's moving so quickly that there's no real chance to kind of like keep this stuff going. Like there, and especially there are these drains, to bigger cities from a lot of places, you know, and like, or, or moving to Toronto like that. And it feels like that probably limits the lifespan of a band. Yeah. And a lot of bands too, you know, fell prey to changing taste and the style of metal at the time as well. A lot of the early metal bands like Kraken or Anvil, you know, they all kind of end up trying to go a little too commercial for most people's tastes. So, you know, but they didn't go glam enough to fall into that glam rock crowd. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yeah. they weren't thrash enough to be liked by the thrash people, you know, like a band like Rapporteurs, you know, when they were influenced by, you know, Judas Priest doing that style of music, people loved it in 81, 82, 83. It all sounded great. But by the time 85 rolled around, there was a lot heavier stuff happening that were drawing people's attention and they couldn't, you know, compete with that. Though they had some great songs like new chopper that were amazing, that were just as heavy, but they also started trying to write those ballads too much. You know, they, mm. most of the records, they get into a studio, they sound great live, but when they got to a studio, all of a sudden, I guess the pressure was to write hits and write ballads. Mm. And, you know, then they lost all their following whatsoever at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of bad, you know, those bands like that, they were a little bit older guys, right? They were probably like five years older than the thrash metal people would say, you know? I think a lot of their influences were the big bands like Zeppelin and, you know, Black Sabbath. So there's huge touring bands. They were the commercial success bands, you know? And I think their idea of what success was, it was reaching that commercial goal of playing stadiums. Whereas, you know, thrash metal bands, which were more influenced by some punk and hardcore they weren't looking in terms of success as being on a stage in front of 10,000 people. They were happy to play in Larry's. That was success to them. You know, I think a lot of the other, those bands didn't get that the Krakens and, you know, the Rapporteurs, they didn't get that, you know, they were just trying to follow that, you know, goal of being commercially successful. Mm -hmm. And I think that was maybe to the detriment of some of the thrash bands, like sacrifice mentioned that in the book, uh, Robert Bernetti says uh, that that was their definition of success, playing at Larry's, you yeah. know, and then the next step was opening for Slayer on the Rain and Blood tour at the concert hall. And they thought they'd made it at that point. They're just like, well, that's it. We're at the, <laughs> we're at the top of the mountain now. Right. So it, it was a difference of perspective. They just didn't really have the, those sort of aspirations um, to sign a, you know, a better management deal or to get in a van and go on tour. There's like, why we're, we're opening for Slayer at, at the, you know, console. Good enough. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was that element of yeah, like they weren't looking for that mainstream success, and therefore they didn't receive, they didn't get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it feels like we, Toronto was the hotbed to go to too, like for this tour. Like you mentioned, Slayer coming here. Like Metallica comes here super early too. Chuck from Death moves up here to join Slaughter early on. Like it feels like this was a, a hotbed for people to come to. Like this was on the metal map internationally um, at that time. I think for the people in the know, it was, but I don't think it was from a commercial standpoint. I don't yeah. think it was looked at as, you know, but people like uh, the, the guys from Death and whatever, like we used to trade uh, fanzines with the people from like Guillotine, you know, and, and people like this, we used to be in contact with them. So they were aware of what was happening here. Um, people like Glenn and I would send out tapes to um, college radio stations and whatnot. And so bands would, and, and other people would do this as well. Dave Bush and uh, you know, Nelly, um, Morgi, she would send out tapes to everybody. And that's how, you know, slaughter tapes got around and sacrificing these things by tape trading. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of it got the word of mouth got out there and we would do that. So people were aware that it existed, but yeah, I think that there needed to be a little bit more follow-up from, um, our, the bands at our end to go out there and, and push it a little bit more. Terry Sadler is a good example for slaughter. Like if you look at fanzines from back in the day, Chris and I were trying to go through a lot of old zines and we were looking for um, coverage of, of these bands. Slaughter's all over the place. They're in all kinds of zines. Their, their photos are plastered everywhere. Their ads for their demos and all this kind of stuff because Terry Sadler was big into that. He was a tape trading guy. He had that background. He was a couple of years older and uh, he had the experience and he had been in previous bands. And he wanted to get the word out there and his, you know, he understood that he had to put that sort of effort into it. Whereas Sacrifice, as a, as a uh, contrast, arguably they were more talented band. They had, you know, skills uh, from, from a technical standpoint, but they didn't really, they weren't the hustly sort of tape trader type guys that would, you know, that would sit down and write a bunch of letters for, you know, to fans and that kind of thing. Terry would do that. And so that was kind of a, a thing that we noticed when we were looking through fanzines. We couldn't find hardly anything on Sacrifice. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Plus that seems very weird, right? Because like yeah. that's a band that everybody liked at the time. And, and obviously they've grown a, a, a huge following since. But they just didn't seem to have that push to, to get the word out there. Well, it's funny because I would say even now that they, they're probably the band that people bring up to me more when I'm talking to people about metal from here. I guess because Propagandi reps them so hard. And it just feels like they're a band that has gotten sort of like out there more internationally at this time. But also, I guess like, you know, I'm looking at the tapes because I got a bunch of the tapes over here. Slaughter always has like incredible graphics on all their stuff, right? Like even the Strapedo tape is like pretty sick, you know, whereas the Sacrifice tape is it's it's cool, but, you know, doesn't have the same sort of like skull appeal. I don't know if you've gotten to this point in the book, but um, in both cases, Sacrifice and Slaughter, um, we've got the original artwork for their first albums. Um, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so when, when you flip through, go to the Sacrifice section and see the original concept for uh, their first album, and uh, you'll be glad that they probably made the change. It's pretty comical. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you're looking for a, for a whacked out cover, that's, the, uh, that's a good example of one. Oh, that's awesome. Well... I can't thank you both enough for all your effort doing this book because it is as a fan of this music, as like a very sort of periphery fan of this music to be able to dive in this deep and take advantage of all your work has been awesome. It's really, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing book. Well, we appreciate you taking a look at it. It's awesome.